Let's pray. Lord, we ask God that you would help us to grow. Lord, help us to see Jesus clearly as we look at your word today. And I pray that everyone here would be dependent upon Christ. Lord, you know the motivations of our hearts. And Lord, you know the ones that are depending on themselves in order to be righteous. But Lord, you teach us in your word that it's only in Christ that we find forgiveness and true righteousness. I pray today, Lord, your spirit would show us Christ. And that God, as we see him more clearly, our trust and our hope and our dependence would be upon him. God, I pray that you'd be my strength and my weakness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible this morning, Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. This morning, we're going to look at a message entitled, God's Design Restored in Christ. God's Design Restored in Christ. And we're going to begin looking at verses 5 through Nine. Let's read those. In verse five, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. And I lost my place. I love that. For it was not to God that it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. We come into a passage like this and I don't know for you, the way that I I hope it's not the first time you've read it, but, but very likely is. And if you're like me, you're perplexed as to what is happening here. You're wondering what's going on. And so I want us to start simple and look at that first word in verse five, for. For is a transition word. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. Now, I think what he's doing here, the more I've looked at this, is I think what he's doing is he goes through chapter one, he says, look, Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. He's greater than the prophets. And I'll tell you one thing that I heard this week that one of the things that happens when you preach through a book like this, you constantly learn where you wish you could go back and do things a little different. And one of the things that I neglected to say, I mentioned that Jesus is greater than the prophets. He's greater than the angels. We get into this, but you know what's interesting is if you look at all of the characteristics of Christ and how the author shows that he's greater than anything in Judaism, it shows that Jesus is the greater prophet. He's the greater priest. He's the greater king right there in chapter one. And he comes through the end of chapter one and look at verse 14. In verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? And what is he doing in verse 14? Showing that Jesus is greater than the angels. 
He says, look, are they not all ministering spirits? And then he gets into a parenthesis almost, chapter two, verse one. It's as if he stops, he's overwhelmed. I've got to get an application here. He says, how shall, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. He, he, he drives that point home. And then in verse five, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world. It's almost as if he's continuing the thought he left off at the end of chapter one. I found this helpful. Stephen Cole, in trying to show, show what is going on in the context, suggests this, and I think he's right. He says, they may have been thinking, if the Son of God is greater than the angels, having obtained a more excellent name than they, verse 4, chapter 1 says that, right? Then how does this fit with his becoming a man, since men are lower than the angels? Furthermore, how does this fit with his dying on the cross? Since angels never die, how then is Jesus superior to the angels? I think he may be on to something there. And I think what he's doing is he's saying, look, let's pause, let's look, and let's examine God's intent, God's design for mankind. And let's look at who man is what God is doing to restore mankind, and let's understand the supremacy of Jesus in the process. So this morning, three questions as we examine this restoration in Jesus Christ. The word restoration is a word that means to return to a former condition, to return to a former place or position. I think it's fitting here as we get started. The first question we're gonna look at today, trying to get to this restoration. What was God's initial design for mankind? What was God's initial design for mankind? We start there in verse five, and he answers this. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. Now, I'm gonna mention this, and if it, if it doesn't matter to you, don't even listen, but some of you are gonna be curious. The interpretive question here is the pronouns he and him in verses five, six, seven, and eight. Are they referring to Christ or are they referring to humanity, to mankind? I believe what he's doing, and again, scripture's the authority, not me, I believe what he's doing is he's referring to mankind in verse five, six, seven, and eight, and then he transitions to talk about Christ. There's godly people who disagree with me, but there's godly people who agree with me, and I agree with them. <laughs> so it's a tough one, but I wanna see it as we go through, and I think it's going to be, the neat way to look at this too is, even if you go the other route, this is landing in this place showing the incredible superiority of Christ. But let's get started. God's initial design is shown here in verse five, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. Then who was it that he subjected the world to come? He mentions the world to come. This is interesting because uh, we have different, uh, there's different people that have different es eschatology. And um, a lot of people 
see the end times, the study of the end times differently. I, I for one, believe personally he's speaking about a millennial kingdom here. But don't let that throw you if you don't believe in a pre-mill view because it still is going to apply regardless of how you look at your eschatology. I believe this is referring to the millennium. I believe it actually fits nicely with that view. But I want you to see something here. He says, it's not to angels in the world to come that they are going to rule, that they are going to act as kings, so to speak that they are going to have the creation subjected to them. Then if it's not to angels, who is it? Who did God subject the world to come? What is going on here? Well, I want us to look at this because he then gets into something. Look at verse five. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. I love this because uh, some people go, wait a minute, what's going on? It has been testified somewhere? That's the way a lot of you uh, answered test questions, right? Where do you find this? And you answered it by saying somewhere it says this. I don't believe for a second that the author has a bad memory here. I believe this is very intentional. And actually, if you follow the argument of Hebrews over and over, he doesn't mention the author of the vessel who was the pen through which the spirit worked. He's emphasizing the fact that God gave the word. So what I believe he's doing is he's very intentional in showing that yes, David was the vessel through which the quotation he's going to give comes out of Psalm chapter eight, verses three, four, five, and six. But he's mentioning this and pointing to the fact that it is of God. David was like a boat moved by the sail as he writes this passage in Psalm chapter eight that the author of Hebrews alludes to. But just as 2 Timothy says, all scripture's inspired by God. It's written by him. Verse six, it has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? Wow, um, this again, Psalm chapter eight, verse three through six what is man? When we see the son of man, we have to ask the question, who is he speaking of? Jesus uses this term multiple times in the gospels, over and over and over. But did you know that the term son of man is used in the book of Ezekiel over 80 times, referring not to God, but to man? When we see the son of man, we have to ask the question, who is it speaking of here? And I believe what he's doing is that he is establishing God's original design for man was to have dominion over the creation. God had a purpose for man. And God's purpose was that he subdue and exercise dominion over the creation. And, and David in Psalm 8 that the author of Hebrews brings out, he says, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him. If you go over to Psalm 8, you don't have to, but I want to read you something. In Psalm 8, verse 3, listen to what David says. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? You think about a lot of uh, people that I read brought up the same image. You know, you think about David on a hillside. And you think about David late at night and you think about him laying there looking up at the stars and looking there thinking, what in the world 
why in your goodness and why in your grace did you, did you find a place for us? What is man? Have you, have you ever just, I'll go outside sometimes at night and out where we live, it, it's really easy to get a glorious glimpse of the stars. And sometimes I'll go out there and I'll look up and I'm just immediately overwhelmed with the sense of smallness. I'm overwhelmed with the idea. How many of you have seen some of the pictures that have come back from Mars? Glorious pictures. And you think about the solar system, the galaxies, you think about, I mean, over and over, we just keep finding out how big and how vast. And what do we look at here? David, overwhelmed, he says, wow, when I see your heavens, when I see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what in the world, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? I love this because mindful of him. Mindful means to recall to one's mind, to recall to one's mind, to remember. God is mindful of us. He remembers us. Think about how many people forget us. I mean, think about it. Have you had bosses that you felt like just forgot about you? Friends from the past that maybe you lost touch with them and you just never heard from them again? It's as if they forgot you. I was telling the first group, I remember being in high school and there were times where I was just so sad how many females forgot about me. I mean, and, and like, I mean, think about Joseph in prison and remember he was forgotten that lonely stretch, but isn't it comforting that while people may forget us, the God who forms it all, and what did he just tell us in chapter one? That Jesus is the agent through which the Father created the world. And so God created all of this universe. God created all in its glory, and yet God is mindful of us. And then he says that you care for him. The word care, it means to look at something and examine closely, to inspect it's an amazing picture of the grace of God that he cares for us. I love this because this morning, again, I challenge my, my younger students that, that often are taught that you're a product of chance and you're a product of naturalism. Naturalism teaches you you're no more valuable than a blade of grass. The scripture here teaches you who you are in the eyes of a creator. And it shows us here, David is overwhelmed by that fact. What is man that you're mindful of him? You think about who we are, how small we are, yet we are significant because God has placed his love on his creation. He, he then, it's interesting, he says, putting everything in subjection. Look at verse seven. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. I believe what he's doing here, he's saying just for a little time, not the way it will always be. At the moment, the, we're a little lower than the angels as humanity. But then he says, we are crowned with glory and honor. We are God's creation and in his glory and sovereignty and wisdom, he desired out of his grace to create us in humanity and crown us with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, now, what is going on here? I believe that the theological basis of what the author of Hebrews is establishing here comes out of Genesis chapter one. Look with me, Genesis chapter one, verse 26. 
Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. This is a, an important verse in so many different ways. One, understand the Trinity is not a New Testament idea. The Trinity is not a post-Constantine fourth century idea. The Trinity is mentioned in Genesis chapter 1. And when it says, let us make man in our image, it's a reference to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who are present at creation. And then he goes on, man made in the image of God. What is man that you are mindful of him? What is man that you would create him in your image? You see, we don't see that about the angels. Man is created in the image of God. And what do we see? After our likeness and let them have what? Dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. You see that word dominion again? He's done what? He's mentioned the word dominion in verse 26 and in verse 28, he mentions the word subdue. When we look at this passage, what does it mean to subdue? To subdue the earth. It's the idea of to bring into subjection. It's, It's used clearly here, of of God's mandate to humans to subdue the created order, this lexicon says. And and, and it's true because we see it right here. The word dominion is another word that speaks of the same idea, to rule, to have dominion, to subjugate, to exercise domain over one's control. We see this statement about Earth. Now, I want you to put your thinking cap on because as we look at this, we have to look at, at, at the, the pronouns here. You see, we look at verse eight and it says, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, I'll give you an idea because I want you to see that even if you go with the route that verse eight is speaking of Christ, I would wholeheartedly agree with these statements. Is everything in subjection under the feet of Christ? We've already learned that in chapter one. He makes his enemies a footstool. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Is everything under the control of God Almighty? Absolutely. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Is that true even of Christ? Yes, because even as he reigns, our visible eye often can't detect that. But again, what is the context saying? I think what he's doing is he's establishing God created man with a design. The man's design seen in Genesis chapter one, verse 26 through 28, is that he is made in the image of God. He exercises dominion over the creation. And I think what he does is he says, look, you know, everything subjection under his feet, same as Genesis 1, 26. He left nothing outside his control. He clarifies all the area of his control on this created order in this earth in verse 26, 27, 28. And then he says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Now, the second question is huge. What happened to God's original design? 
What happened to God's original design? And if you notice at the end of verse eight, he alludes to it. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. I want you to think about this for a second. Is that the way we see it? Now, I want you to, why is that? What happened? When we think about this question, what happened to God's original design? What is it that took place? And then we'll talk about it. Look at Genesis 3.17, which comes after, obviously, Genesis 1.26 through 28. And what we have to see as we look at this passage, be reminded that the world of Genesis 1 is different than the world of Genesis 3. The world of Genesis 1 is before the fall. But Genesis 3, what did we learn in verse 17? And Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Now look at this next part. Wait a minute. I'm to have dominion over it? And look at what we see now. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. I mean, on and on and on. And then look what he says. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken. You are dust and to dust you shall return. Look at chapter two, verse 17. In chapter two, verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the author here clearly feels and stresses the tension of what God's design was for man in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. What I believe is clarified in Hebrews chapter two, verse five, six, and seven, as he quotes from Psalm chapter eight, verses three through six. And there he is showing what? What is going on? This is not what the reality is to our eye because we read here, in this passage in verse eight, at the end of verse eight again, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. In fact, it looks quite opposite at times. There's a reason if you go out west and you go to a game park, you typically stay in your car. You don't get out. Why? I don't know about you, but I don't want to come face to face with some of those animals. There's a reason you go to Denali Park in Alaska, and I've been there, and they tell you to wear something around your belt that makes like the sounds of bells. Why? You don't want to scare a grizzly. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Pastor Steve, one of the kids says, I thought Genesis chapter one says we are in dominion over the creation. Why would a grizzly bear eat me? Well, things aren't the way they once were. And what's taken place? The fall of man. What's happened? You know, on and on and on, we'll see here that there's something different. And what's taken place is tragic. Because of the fall, now we have disease. Now we have death. Now we have tornadoes. Now we have hurricanes. 
Now we have pandemics. Do you think there were pandemics in Genesis 1 stage of the Garden of Eden? Not on your life. You think there were hurricanes rolling through Genesis chapter 1? Not on your life. Why? Because that which God had designed with man exercising dominion over the created order was not a world where the fall had affected yet. Genesis 3 is a different world. And what do we read in 2 Corinthians 4? In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. How in the world can Paul allude to Satan being the God of this world when clearly the created order and the created design was for man to exercise dominion? What's taking place? What's the only biblical theological explanation? The fall of man. Sin, Ephesians chapter two, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It, it keeps getting more tragic. First John chapter five, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It keeps going. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is going to be where we land today, so be encouraged. It's going to get brighter. Look at Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Adam was our human representative. In his sin, we took part. We would have done the same. He was the representative for all humanity. In fact, it is so different. I love this quote. I was looking at a... Uh, I'll tell you, it's such a blessing to have the resources that we have available to us as Christians. I learned so many things from so many godly men. I, was, I just leaned on them on this section. I came across something from Gospel Light Ministries, and a gentleman did a wonderful job. He quoted from Chesterton. He quoted from Bruce, and I want you to see both of these quotes. They're awesome. G.K. Chesterton says it like this. Whatever else is or is not, true this one thing is certain. Man is not what he was meant to be. Instead of having the mastery, he is mastered. Instead of ruling, he is enslaved. Instead of being characterized by strength, he's characterized by great weakness. Instead of being an ally of the Lord God, subject to him, the scriptures tell us that he is a rebel against God. Instead of being characterized by glory, He's characterized by shame. What in the world is going on? The fall, sin, the virus of sin has affected all of us. FF, it wasn't FF Bruce. I gave him credit. It's FB Meyer. It was FF Bruce's buddy, FB. I'm just kidding. I don't know. FB Meyer. All right. His crown is rolled in the dust. His honor tarnished and stained. His sovereignty is strongly disputed by the lower orders of creation. We have Genesis chapter one, and then we see the reality of Genesis chapter three. You've got to get to this dilemma. You have to understand things are not the way 
they were in Genesis chapter one. You see, if we don't get to this dilemma, we'll never understand the gospel. If, if we could fix it, what do we do? You see, the third question this morning is who can restore us? Who can restore us? This is a mess. We were supposed to subject be over the creation. Instead, we are enslaved to sin. We're enslaved to sin. We are facing death. We are facing disease. We are facing pandemics. We are facing on and on and on and on and on. Who can restore us? I love it. I've given you a lot of quotes, but this is worth giving you one more. Charles Spurgeon says it like this. Man is not now in his original estate, and therefore he rules not now. And we see many men who are very far from being royal beings, for they are mean and groveling, yet the glory of man is not all lost as we shall see. And then he goes on, just listen to this. It was so with Adam in his measure, before he fell, through his disobedience, all the animals which God had made were inferior to him and owned him as their Lord and master. It is infinitely more so in that second Adam who has restored to humanity its lost dignity and in his own person has elevated man again to the head of creation. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, this gets exciting. I don't know if it's gonna come out the way it got in, but I'll tell you, this hit me. This got me so excited because look at verse nine. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. It's as if, I'm not for certain, but I, this is my best go at it. It's as if the author of Hebrews is very aware of the son of man often used for men and the son of man very often used for Messiah. And it's as if what he's doing here is he starts out quoting Psalm 8, and he speaks about God's design for humanity. But then when he gets to verse 9, he illustrates the messianic nature of this true fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment. The ultimate fulfillment would be fulfilled by the greatest man, the greatest man. And who was the greatest man? The greatest man is a man we call the greater Adam. He's the man we call the second Adam. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. And at this point, it's as if he's saying Jesus Christ enters Psalm chapter 8. He enters into the story. And what do we read about him? We see him for a little while who was made lower than the angels. What is that referring to? It reminds you of Philippians chapter 2 and the humility of Christ. And that reminds you of the incarnation. He humbled himself. And then what does he say? Namely, Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He enters the story. He enters the story. And, and what's, what's, what's amazing is, is that what's going on here, he's crowned with glory and honor. In order for man to come and be restored, it takes one with glory and honor to be our substitute 
in order that we can live out of the design that God intended in Genesis 1. Uh, this, is, this is amazing. I, I was looking at this and and, and, and notice what happens. Something drastic happens. You read about Satan, the prince of the power of the air. You read about the world lies in the hands of the evil one. And then you read Revelation 5. What is going on? What is going on? And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And then look what he does. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What happened? What happened? There was the fall. What happened? The greater Adam, the second Adam, he came with glory and honor through the cross. And what did he do? He brought what only he could bring. Look at Luke 20, 36. You talk about a change. For they cannot die anymore, speaking of those trusting in him, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. You mean to tell me that while for a little while we are lower than the angels God's intention in Genesis 1:26 is not that we are lower than the angels. The passages we look at here were at worst equal, and in many cases, we are over angels. Keep going with me. This is amazing. 1 Corinthians 6:3. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? On and on and on, he speaks of this. He speaks of the amazing majesty of God who restores that which was broken and gives us a future hope of a vision of what God intended for his people. Look at verse nine. What did he do? We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. On Sunday nights last week and tonight, we're talking about penal substitutionary atonement. That may be the most foreign term you've ever heard in your existence. But all it speaks about is, is like when we look, you know, as, as human beings, when we look at the cross and we go, what is going on at the cross? What is happening? What, scholars and theologians in history have said, wait a minute, the greatest, th this is substitution. This is Christ Jesus, the greater Adam, taking our place. We have failed. We have not lived up to the design that God has given us. We are broken we are alienated. We are enemies. We are sinners. But what did Jesus do? He went to the cross. And in the language there of Hebrews 2, 9, what did he do? He acted as our substitute. He took our place so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And this really hit me. I didn't see this the whole time I was studying it until the very end. And in verse 10, he goes further. It says, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory. You remember back in the earlier part of this passage 
We were created with glory and honor. How do beings, human beings that have gone through the fall and have gone through sin and the devastation of the effects of sin, how can they be restored to their former glory? How can Genesis 3 people be brought back to the reality of Genesis 1? Well, the only way it happens, the only way it takes place is the greater Adam, the second Adam, has to bring many sons to glory. This morning, man, that's good news. That's good news. It means that Jesus takes that which is broken and he's the only one that can fix it. Jesus is the only one that can forgive. Jesus is the only one that can heal. Jesus is the only one that can restore. He's the only one that can purchase back. He's the only one that can do that. We see this morning, what was God's initial design for mankind to rule and have dominion and reign as kings on the earth. But what happened to God's original design? The fall took place. Sin separated us from God. But what took place and who can restore us? Only the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember 2 Corinthians 5, 21? He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This morning I was thinking, what do we do with this? How do we leave from here? One, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. You remember what we just read in chapters 2, verse 1 through 4? What did he say? He said there in verse one, he says, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. This morning, if your faith and your hope is in Jesus, he is calling you, instructing you to hold dear to what you learn about him all through chapter one. And it continues here. You know, if you ever had a thought, well, wait a minute, Jesus must not be greater than the angels because he became the God man. Men are lesser than angels. And then you go, no, 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 no. Look at the plan that God has. Look at his design. Look at what Jesus brings. But then you say, why would he be greater than the angels? Because he died a cruel death on a cross, how could he be greater than the angels? But then you look at the glory of what we read in verse five through nine, and we see that he in his death on a cross tasted death for us. He tasted death for everyone in the text in order that we might live. Pay attention this morning. Are you paying attention? Did you get through last week and you've already forgot it? It's easy to forget things, isn't it? I wonder if we could have gone through a whole passage about pay attention and we walked out and completely forgot about it. But second of all this morning, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Keep going. Don't lose heart. Think about the context of Hebrews. What's happening? We've already established through some certain verses that these are persecuted Christians. Persecuted Christians that are tempted to do what? Step back into Judaism, forsake Christ. Persecuted Christians can get overwhelmed in the here and now. Persecuted Christians can get overwhelmed in the reality of verse 8 that we do not yet see everything in subjection to him because we know in Scripture there's this already and not yet tension, isn't there? Already we've experienced it, but then on another way, we haven't experienced it yet. It's already happened. The kingdom is present in our lives because Christ reigns, but we haven't fully experienced the kingdom. It's not yet. We see that same idea here, these Christians that were tempted to despair. I wonder what you're dealing with. 
This passage, I believe, instructs us that if we're not careful and we lose heart over the temporal, it can really be devastating to the way we live as Christians. I was thinking to the first group this morning or talking to the first group, think about how many people in our church body have lost people they love over the last six months. And I'll tell you, you know, everybody's journey of grief is different. I, I, uh, one of my good buddies told me when dad died, he said, Stephen, he goes, the pain will lessen. He goes, just trust me, the pain will lessen. And I'm five years into it. And by the grace of God, the pain has lessened. It's come down some. I'm still overwhelmed by the breadth and the, and the, and the scope of my loss. But I'll tell you this, when people are in the immediate stages of grief, the pain hasn't lessened. And sometimes when you deal with the loss of a loved one, the loss of a spouse, the loss of a kid, the loss of, I haven't dealt with many of these, but what happens, people are tempted to despair. But what we have to see is that the author of Hebrews wants Christians in the here and now to have a vision of the plan and the design of the future that they hold. If we don't live looking in light of what God is going to do in the future, we lose heart in the present. And we have to see this because it's easy to get in despair. It's easy to lose sight. I mean, people always talking about, we lost the culture war. We've done this. We've done that. What are we going to do politically? What about this? What about this? Listen, we're not defeated. We move from victory, not towards victory. We are victors in Christ. And in Jesus Christ, because he's the greater Adam, he's the second Adam, we're not moving to some place of despair. We are future kings who reign with him. That changes everything. But let me ask you, what would it do if someone had a low Christology, a low view of Christ, a low view of his glory and his sovereignty, and they live life with blinders on, only looking right here. They live in a temporal world, and the author of Hebrews says, he is greater than Adam. And it's through his greatness we can be restored to what God's original design was for man. Finally, this morning, not only pay attention, not only don't lose heart and keep going, but finally, present your bodies in worship. Uh, This morning, I don't know what you're going to take away with. I hope it's not, you know, well, the pronouns in verse 8 could either mean this or that. That's what I learned. No, don't, don't go there. I want you to this morning to ask yourself the question, regardless of what it is you took away, I want you to ask yourself the question, what I learned from what God has revealed to me in his word this morning, how does it compel me to worship him? That's the question I want you to chew on this afternoon. This is not just informational stuff. This is not just let's learn more about Christ. This is let's learn more about Christ because it's only as we learn more about Christ do we understand reality. Do we understand true life? Offer your body, offer up your life. Young people, there's no greater way to live. Don't live for the things of the world. Don't live for the weekend. Don't live for your youth. Live for the glory of God. Because understand something this morning. There's a warning that's implied within this passage. There are people in this room today that have never come to a true saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The future forecast for your life is bleak, dark, and ugly. 
I was looking at the forecast, and it's going to rain a lot this week. It got me down. But understand, if you're here today and you've never come to a place of saving knowledge of Jesus, you've never put your hope and your faith in him, understand, the forecast for your life is going to be disastrous. It's going to be filled with the judgment of God. But dear friend, there's hope. The God who is mindful of us and the God who cares for us is a God of mercy and grace. Praise God. And, and in our sin, he did not leave us. But in our sin, he pursued us. And he restores us through the sacrifice of his son that we might live according to his plan, his glory, and his design. I pray today you know him. I pray today you've trusted in him. I pray today that this compels you to fall on your knees and worship the living God who in your sin and in your destruction and in your failed attempt to be what God intended you to be, he has come to take your place and live his life for you that you might be restored as to what his purposes are for us. Would you bow your head? Lord, I thank you for your word. And God, as we continue next week and continue to flesh this out and chew on more of so much that we just went over quickly, I pray today, God, we would be overwhelmed that our only hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet again, the author of Hebrews demonstrates the greatness and the superiority and the supremacy of Jesus. You truly are greater than the prophets. You're greater than the angels. And we praise you today because you're greater than Adam. Yet you, con you came, you condescended and humbled yourself to become the God-man. And in your incarnation, you did what only you could do in order that we might be who you called us to be. I pray today that everyone's 